Well, thank you very much for that. Let's read the Bible together, shall we? We'll go back to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to read the section that follows on from uh, what John was uh, looking at with us last week. And uh, so we're in Exodus chapter 2, and uh, it says there, verse 18. I'm not sure that's right, actually. No, it's not. I think it's verse 11 we're starting from. Okay, so verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2, here we go. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one uh, in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? (laughs) It's okay. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters. I've had three, that's plenty. But anyway, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them, or literally, and he knew them. Okay, that's the passage we're we're going to read together. And uh, it's a fairly straightforward story, isn't it? It fits right into what's going on at the start of Exodus. The people of Israel are in Egypt. They've been there for almost four centuries at the point where the story starts. 430 years in all of the exile. And uh, things have gone very badly for them. From being welcomed guest laborers, they've sunk down to being pretty much slaves. And uh, there's no way out. Uh, in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, you've seen how God has preserved one Israelite baby because there's a special job for this baby to do. Uh, but uh, at the start of this story, he's just in the palace growing up as, to all intents and purposes, an Egyptian prince. And our section tonight talks about how God takes him out of that. And through a whole series of choices that he makes, some of them good, some of them bad, ends up with a new home, in a very strange place, a new wife and a baby. (laughs) So we want to look at three things tonight. First of all, how Moses got it wrong and what happened when he did get it wrong, because that's the first half of the story involving murder, flight to the countryside and all sorts of other things. 
Then when Moses got it right, because in the second part of the story, just when you're starting to think, why did God pick this guy in the first place? Suddenly you start seeing some redeeming features, don't you? And you start to realize, oh yes, maybe there's more to Moses than beats the eye. And that's always important, isn't it? Because sometimes it's difficult for us to see exactly what God has put inside people. And it's only later on that it actually comes out of them. Um, I'm tempted to tell stories here, but I better not. But uh, suffice it to say that uh, you sometimes have people in churches, don't you? And you think you've got them sussed. You think you know what they're all about. And then somehow, in a situation that they hadn't encountered before, God draws something out of them that makes you think, wow, I didn't know that was there. Pretty amazing. And uh, I think that's certainly what happened with Moses here. Through the disaster he brought on himself, God brought him into a situation where other things could shine out of him. And then third and finally, we've got those little verses at the end from verse 23 to 25, which are kind of turning point in the story. And they remind us that this is not the story of Moses. (laughs) It's not the story of one human individual and how he became great. As John was reminding us last week, it's God that's doing this, not any human being. And Moses makes a sheer mess of it, doesn't he, when he starts out? But God is going to bring something out of this situation. And although for a long time now he seemed not to be listening, he is listening. He's there. And he's just starting to move in the background and lay the foundations for a story in which Moses is going to be the centre, but he's not going to be the driver because God is doing that himself. Okay, let's look at the first of those things then. When Moses got it wrong, he comes out of, uh, out of uh, his palace or wherever it is he's living at that point. He's, he's now a, a grown-up Hebrew, but he looks a bit like an Egyptian. He's got his hair uh, uh, perfumed as the Egyptians did. His beard is cut like an Egyptian. Nobody would probably know much that he was an Israelite, uh, except that he has grown up with a very, very strong loyalty to his own people. And we don't know how secret that was. We don't know whether or not the, uh, the Hebrews that he stops fighting with one another would have recognized him as one of them. It looks like they do. So maybe he never kept his Hebrew ancestry a secret. But to all intents and purposes, he's an Egyptian. And he comes across a, a, an Egyptian taskmaster who's, who's beating a Hebrew slave. And whether it was the only thing he could do because the slave would be dead otherwise, or whether it was just that he, he just became totally unreasonably um, annoyed by what was going on and just overreacted, the Egyptian ended up dead <laughs> and Moses had to do something about it. It was kind of premeditated, wasn't it? It wasn't just sheer passion because it says it in verse 12, glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. It wasn't that he killed him and then said, Whoop, did anybody see that? <laughs> he had a good look round first. And so there's something a little bit premeditated about that. And maybe what he was thinking was this is where the revolt starts. This is where the great Israelite struggle begins. I'm going to be the hero. We'll assassinate a few Egyptians. The word will get around quietly that I'm the guy who's orchestrating this. They will all flock to my banner and we'll get them out of Egypt. But he had it all wrong. Uh, In all sorts of different ways. For one thing, he had the wrong vision. (laughs) I don't know how much vision he did actually have. I mean, he may have had some kind of idea like that. uh, But uh, I'll bet it wasn't as big as the vision that God actually had. I mean, the Israelites had been there in Egypt, hadn't they, for nearly four centuries. If you think back from this year, 400 years ago is 1618. Shakespeare's just been dead for two years. 
the authorised version of the Bible is only, what, seven years old, something like that? It's a long time back. James the sixth and first is still on the throne. And if you think back that far, and imagine that the Germans had conquered us in 1618, and they'd been in charge of the country right up until now, how would we have seen ourselves? <laughs> We'd have seen ourselves a little bit differently from the way we do, I guess. Because it would have been such a long period of oppression, of being ruled by somebody else, would have started to think, this is the way it's always going to be. It's never going to be any, any different. And if anybody was looking on, it must have looked to them as if God had forgotten his people entirely. He just left them in Egypt and said, right, I'm finished with you. And all of these plans about Abraham having a family that was as, as many as the grains of sand on the seashore in number, as many as the, the stars in the sky, that's been shelved, that's been ditched. God's never going to do that. But that's not true. God has his own way of doing it. But Moses, thinking he can do it by himself, has underestimated the size of the problem. What did he think might happen? I'll bet his vision for the future didn't entail going all the way across the desert. I'll bet it didn't entail finding a country of their own that would be their own land. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking of, but certainly his, his vision was much shorter uh, and shorter term than, than, than anything that God had in mind. But it wasn't just his vision that was wrong. It was the wrong vision. It was also the wrong method. You don't go around killing Egyptians like that. That's not the way to do it. Maybe he thought he could provoke a revolt. A bit like Charles Manson and the Manson cult. Do you remember back in the, the late 1960s who went round the streets of Hollywood at night murdering people because they thought that they were going to provoke a revolt. They tried to leave evidence behind suggesting that black people had done it and they wanted to start a race war between the whites and the blacks. They never got with an, a, a shout of that. It was just completely impossible the way they went about it. And maybe Moses was thinking the same thing. If we can get a little bit of terror going on here, a few assassinations, a few things happening that just unsettle the Egyptians, then the Israelites will start to believe in themselves and we can start a movement that will bring us justice and equality. And I don't know what he was thinking of. But uh, it was the wrong method to use. And we know that from history. Because although the pharaohs of Egypt had enormous power, they were just one person. And what really kept the Egyptian system going was a massive powerful and very effective civil service. <laughs> so even if Moses had managed to make a little bit of a change through his terror tactics, there was no way that Pharaoh was going to change his mind and let the, the Israelites have more freedom or anything like that. The rest of the Egyptian system would have seen to that. These murders that he was thinking about, they would have made no difference whatsoever. And every time there was a slave revolt in the Egyptian empires, right down through all the dynasties, it was always snuffed out very quickly. So Moses didn't stand a chance with the methods he was using. He also had the wrong timing. <laughs> it wasn't the right moment. These people had been slaves for a very long time. They weren't capable of thinking about being free. Uh, when the Hebrews that he separated from fighting one another saw him, they didn't think, here he comes, it's our liberator, it's the one who's going to lead us to freedom. They just saw somebody who might as well have killed them as he killed anybody else. It was meaningless as far as they were concerned. And so what you see is Moses trying to do his best, to do his bit, to do what he felt he was there for. And he had good reason, I think, for believing 
that God must have wanted him to do something special. He'd have been told the story secretly as he was growing up about how he was floating in the basket in the bulrushes and God made this amazing uh, uh, deal for him that he could actually go home with the princess and be brought up in the palace. And Moses, we're going to watch you with interest because your life is really going to be special. God has saved you so that you can do something big. You're going to be amazing. Just wait and see what happens. Always dangerous to tell a child that. (laughs) A leader of one of the most poisonous cults of the late 1960s, the Children of God, uh, had a mother and a father who were both evangelists, Pentecostal evangelists. And they were given a a prophecy about him before he was born that uh, their child was going to be a great Christian leader. The end result was that he grew up uh, just just feeling absolutely annoyed because nobody apart from his parents would recognize how special he was. And after a time of working with one or two evangelical ministries and not really getting the the, um, respect and, uh, and the prominence that he thought he should have, he just went off and founded his own group. And because he was accountable to nobody, because he was making up the rules as he went along, because he also had several... Bad habits, which he was now able to indulge without anybody telling we shouldn't. The whole thing just drifted further and further into a really sick denial of what Christianity is really all about. It's dangerous when you tell your kids too much about how special they are. But Moses knew, anyhow, that he had some future, because why would God have preserved his life otherwise? It had to mean something. The trouble was he decided to get on with it himself. Here's a Hebrew. Here's an Egyptian. The Egyptian is mistreating the Hebrew. Nobody's watching. (laughs) Seemed obvious. God, you have created this opportunity. Thank you. I will now kill the Egyptian. That is not the way God works. It was never going to work. And if he'd thought for five minutes, he'd have seen that that would be the case. But we're always in more of a hurry than God is. I was just thinking the other day, I've been on the leadership team at Belmont um, for about 30 years. And when I started out, I remember writing down on a piece of paper some of the things I wanted to see happen in the church within five years. Some of them are just starting to happen now. <laughs> takes a long time sometimes. Not because God is slow to move, but because people are slow to change. And after you've been prisoners, slaves, browbeaten, told your rubbish, not properly fed, not given building materials for the last almost 400 years... <laughs> then you're not going to be uh, ready to do something straight away. So God had to prepare the people, but God also had to prepare Moses. And so God used this incident to get Moses out of Egypt. He'd probably never have gone apart from that, into a place where God could teach him some pretty hard lessons. And Moses came back smelling rather interesting and knowing an awful lot about sheep. And uh, by the time he gets to the burning bush, not to pinch somebody else's subject, by the time he gets to the burning bush, his self-confidence has been absolutely shattered. There is no way he's going to take an arrogant stand and say, right, I'm the leader, this is the way we go. God has turned him into somebody who's almost scared to go and stand before Pharaoh, scared to do anything. And God has quite an argument with Moses, doesn't he? Uh, uh, um, before Moses is ready to go back to Pharaoh. And uh, I remember Billy Strachan, who used to be at Cape Royal, saying, let's just look at uh, what Moses said. Oh, Lord, I am not eloquent and I have not been heretofore. And he even was like eloquent and heretofore. He can talk all right. And uh, Moses just didn't have any belief in himself left. But God had to put him through those 40 years 
of reflecting on the mistakes he'd made before he was ready for the next thing. Sometimes that happens. God is the God, though, of second chances. He doesn't just shut the door and say, right, you've blown it, that's you, away you go. I don't have anything more to do with you in future. I've got, I gave you a chance and you missed it up, so that's the end of that. Do you remember when the Israelites first had a king of their own? Uh, Samuel argued with them. He said, look, if you have a king, it'll be terrible. He'll want territory so he can build his palace. He'll take your boys and put them in the army and they'll get shot at. He'll take your girls and all be pastry cooks and kitchen maids and who knows what in the palace. And it'll be dreadful. You don't want a king. And he said, no, but we will have a king to be like the nations about us. And so in the end, God says to Samuel, hey, Samuel, just relax. It's not you they're rejecting, it's me. Go and give them what they want. I'll lead you to the person who's going to be their king. And then your job's finished. Don't worry, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) And so Samuel finds the king for them and reminds him again of what it's going to be like. And he said, right, in his final speech, now I'm going home. I don't see that you will have any need of me anymore. So I'm finished. And then he says something staggering. But God forbid, he says, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's great, isn't it? You're going the wrong way. This is God's plan B, not plan A. But you're still God's people, and plan B is still part of his plan. He'll work it out. He'll make it all happen. And so I've still got to pray for you. You're still in his will, even if you're off in the wrong direction. And that's, of course, is what happens to Moses here, isn't it? He goes off in the wrong direction because he makes a big mistake. And it's a mistake that must have seemed to bring his ministry crashing down about his ears. I'll never be anything now. All I can hope to be for the rest of my life is, is a shepherd in Midian. I'll never be back in Egypt. If I got near the palace, I'd have a sword run through me straight away. I'll never be able to lead my people. I'm a discredited failure. I'm a fugitive. And my whole life is in tatters. And God is just using that as part of his plan to do what he wants to do with Moses' life. Isn't that great? That God actually uses our mistakes, our disasters, as part of his plan for the future. It's basic Romans 8.28, isn't it? In everything that happens, God is at work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. It's not that God's doing it, but God's using it. And he's bringing good out of the chaos. He's bringing purpose out of the confusion. Because that's what he does. So, wrong vision, wrong method, wrong time. You see all sorts of examples of that, don't you, down through Christian history. John Wesley, for a start. Do you remember how uh, he'd been a very, very pious young man at, uh, at university? He'd founded a thing called the Holy Club, where he and his brother and George Whitfield and one or two others had put themselves through the most intense discipline, spiritual exercises, day by day by day. They were very, very serious about their faith. And John Wesley thought, uh, when he graduated, right, now I'm a great gift to missionary work. God must see that. And he's probably prepared me this way to, 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 to give me a fantastic ministry. Where do people need to get converted? America. I'm going to go and preach to the Red Indians and uh, they'll all become Christians and my name will be famous forever afterwards. So what happens? He goes off to Georgia. He's given a job as chaplain to some of the settlers out there and he makes an absolute mess of it. He didn't go around killing people and burying their bodies in the sand, but pretty much the same thing. He uh, got involved with a girl and seemed to be getting uh, very friendly with her and it was at the point where everybody was expecting them to get married and then he got cold feet 
and jilted her. And she, on the rebound, went for somebody else. And then they went to Wesley and said, will you marry us? Well, there was nobody else around. He was a clergyman. And John Wesley said, no, I don't think he's good enough for you, so I'm not going to do that. And the whole colony was in absolute outrage. And he had to leave his job and, uh, and get back to England on the next available ship. And he went back with his tail between his legs. He'd gone to preach to the Red Indians. He'd never got near them. And it must have seemed like an absolute disaster. Except that on the way back, there were a bunch of people on the ship who were Moravian Christians from Germany. And they had been out there as missionaries and they hadn't had the educational advantages that Wesley had. They hadn't had the years of spiritual disciplines and preparation or anything like that. But they had a faith that he did not have. And partway across the... Was that me? It's either me or the Lord doesn't like it, but one way not. Um, but partway across the Atlantic, there's this massive storm. And everybody is running around. Oh, we're going to sink, we're going to sink, we're going to die. Where's my will? And these Moravians at this point, are having a Bible study on the deck of the ship. And they don't even get up from their Bible study. They just carry on in a very German fashion discussing what the passage means. And everybody else is running around in panic. And Wesley's so taken by their calm. He says to the master, didn't you realize that we were in danger of death? And he said, no, we die, we go to be with Jesus. So, you know, might as well read a bit of the Bible before we get there. And uh, Wesley was just so amazed. He started going to their meetings in London. And it was through that that he felt his heart strangely warmed one night when somebody was reading just the preface of a commentary to the book of Romans. <laughs> and he said, isn't it ironic that I who went out to America to bring the Red Indians to Christ needed to be brought to Christ myself? And of course we know what happened after that. His whole ministry changed. And they... It's not that it was all downhill from there, that he never had any problems again. He had massive problems, some of them in Exeter. There's a place in South Street in Exeter where he almost lost his life when a crowd of people who were set on him by the, the local publicans who didn't like the fact they weren't making as much money um, arranged for him to be roughed up a little bit. And we don't know where it was, but uh, uh, he was standing in front of a house being pressed by this angry mob with bricks and, 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 and sticks and things and uh, suddenly a door opened behind him and a woman yanked him into the house shut the door again said right out the back door <laughs> and he got off with his life so it wasn't an easy life but it was a tremendously effective one and God used his early disappointments to cut him down to size to make him see it didn't depend on him it depended on God and when it was God's time God had a ministry for him that he'd never expected he said when he started preaching to those vast crowds of, of, of uh, uh, miners and, uh, and uh, farm workers, I, 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 when I first started preaching, I almost thought preaching was a sin if it wasn't done in a church. He was a very correct individual, and as you can see in all the pictures of him, he always wore his clerical bands and his clerical collar any time he preached. He'd never have preached with looking like this. Can't do that. So he's very correct, right to the end of his life. But God smashed through his, his concern with doing things right and doing things properly and just sent him out to thousands and thousands of people who, who needed to hear his voice, needed to know the gospel. And uh, it made a massive change in, in his whole ministry. This is another fellow in the 18th century who went through a similar situation. This is uh, William Carey, great missionary to India. Now, he didn't have Wesley's advantages. He should never have been a, a, a missionary. 
Uh, he was somebody who was just a village cobbler, as you probably know. And when he spoke to the Bedfordshire um, Baptist Association about the need to send people out to parts of the world that hadn't heard the gospel so that people could become Christians and churches could be planted, the chairman famously, you've probably heard this one, uh, said, sit down, young man. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. And Carey was just burning to go to India. In the end, he did. And he's remembered today as one of the greatest figures in Indian history. The first man to start a savings bank in India. The first man to um, uh, uh, bring a a printing press to India. The first man to catalogue Indian flora and fauna. The first man to start a school in Sarampore in India. And all kinds of firsts. He did all kinds of things over the time. He was, was just amazing. But the most important thing is he had the Bible translated very quickly into all of the major Indian languages. And he saw people becoming Christians as a result of that. A church was planted which grew enormously. But you know what? He was an example of somebody who got his timing wrong. Badly, badly wrong. He was so concerned to get out there and get out there fast, he ignored the fact that he had ten children and a wife who didn't want to go and a sister-in-law who came along for the ride but was disapproving of everything they did. He sent the £1,000 he had in the world on with a friend of his on ahead so that uh, something could be bought for them to live in and uh, their needs could be met to start with, only to find that when he got to India, the money had been lost. There was no money. And so he had to work for 10 years in India as the manager of an indigo factory just to make enough money to keep his family together. During that time, his wife went mad and died. And Carey learned bitterly the hard way that you don't rush ahead of God. You wait until it's his time. And when it's his time, then it's all going to happen. He had a definite calling. He was somebody whom God used amazingly, far more possibly than anybody else in India since. And you could tell lots of stories like that. It still goes on today. Uh, many of us uh, have uh, seen Veggie Tales put together by this guy, Phil Fisher. And uh, the VeggieTales empire was a massive one at one stage. And Phil Fisher was thinking in the late 1990s, we're almost as big as Disney with small children. We need to build a Christian company that's going to be big enough to rival Disney, have the same production values, but putting out the gospel. It was a tremendous vision to have. The trouble is it wasn't God's vision. And uh, the end result was in 2003 through a whole series of, of uh, uh, bad things happening, which he's very honest about, very humble about, and takes a lot of, a lot of uh, personal uh, responsibility for. Uh, he learned an awful lot through that. He's back now, and you've seen the What's in the Bible series of videos, which Phil Fisher bound, bouncing back very triumphantly. And those videos would never have happened but for what he went through. But you see what he says here. When I watch it now, when I watch what happened to the company, I can smell my ambition, the drive to do as much as I could with Big Idea, that was the name of his company, as fast as I could. We were in financial trouble, actually, before we went into production. The movie became about me wanting God to put a stamp of approval on my ambition, and he didn't. He consciously declined my invitation. Sometimes the best way to grow is to lose and to fail dramatically and publicly. And if Moses was reading that, he'd say, yep, I know what you're talking about, (laughs) because it happened to him. 
Okay, let's look at the second part of this song because we're running out of time here. When Moses got it right. Because in the next bit of chapter, chapter 2, you find him doing some good things quite quietly without even thinking about it and finding that God starts to piece his personal life together at least uh, through what he's done. And it's pretty unconscious behavior. He's just doing what he would do normally anyway. And uh, sometimes that's when God uses us most powerfully, isn't it? When we are not planning to be used powerfully. (laughs) When we're just doing what we normally do. And that's when people can see us as we really are. C.S. Lewis once said that if you want to see what a man is about, watch what he does when he's taken aback. (laughs) When he's not thinking about it. When he's he's surprised. When he, he... The reactions you get in moments like that tell you what kind of person you're dealing with. And that's right, isn't it? It's sometimes when we're not planning our behavior, we're not adjusting the image and making everything look right, that God can shine through. And this certainly happened with Moses here. Because, for one thing, you find him being sympathetic. I think Moses was always sympathetic to girls. He was surrounded most of his life, if you think about it, by powerful women. His mother clearly had uh, something uh, going for her. Pharaoh's daughter was a powerful woman. Miriam was a pain in the neck, as far as Moses was concerned, for years and years. But a very powerful woman. And he knew that women were not to be trifled with. And maybe that's another reason that God gave him the job he did. But anyhow, that's going a long way off the subject. But when he found these seven daughters of the priest of Midian being bullied by shepherds who were trying to chase them away from the watering holes, he was annoyed. Water's scarce in that area, and these men are using their physical muscle just to push the girls away so that they can get all they need for their flocks and the girls can have nothing. And we're not told how how Moses did it, but he got involved. Why would he have got involved? Let's face it, at this point, he's a fugitive. He's on the run. The last thing you want to happen is for reports to get back to Pharaoh. Oh, there's some strange Egyptian who's going around pushing his, 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 throwing his weight around and knocking shepherds' heads together. He doesn't want to be found. He wants to stay under the radar. So what's he doing? Thrusting himself into an argument that's none of his business. Well, he just doesn't want these girls to be mistreated. And you start to see the kind of sympathy in Moses that one of these days is going to lead to almost burnout. When he's got people standing in front of his tent from morning through to night, there in the wilderness, and he's dealing with one problem, then another problem, then another problem. And when Jethro, his father-in-law, comes on a visit, he says, Moses, you're mad. Delegate. Find some other people. Look, you can't deal with all this yourself. But Moses was a sympathetic guy. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons, it seems to me, that God chose him in the first place. He was also courageous. We don't know how many of the other shepherds there were, what the odds were. But for him just to jump in like that, at the risk of Pharaoh finding out where he was, and all that kind of thing, it was courage. It was brave, um, just as the killing of the Egyptian was brave, but it was stupid. (laughs) And so Moses is a courageous guy. He's somebody who's prepared to take risks, even in fights that are none of his business officially. More than that, though, too, he's practical. Because once he's chased off the other shepherds, he stays and not only comes to the rescue, but waters their flock as well. And so because Moses has given them a helping hand and all the flock are are watered in record time, they go home and Dad says, you girls are home quickly. How did you manage to do it so fast? And it's because Moses didn't just chase all the other shepherds away with the big sticks. They won't be back, girls. Okay, you get on with the watering. Bye-bye. He didn't do that. He stayed and he helped them. He was practical. 
And that's another reason, I guess, that God was able to take him and put him in charge of a massive people movement out of Egypt, through the desert, into the promised land. He was somebody who wasn't just an airy-fairy thinker. He was somebody who saw practical problems and uh, uh, understood a little bit about what had to be done to follow the job through and see the job finished. So all of this is good, isn't it? And there's one more thing as well. When the girls go home and say, yeah, we met this Egyptian, and he helped us in all sorts of ways. It was brilliant. It was amazing. Jethro said, so uh, where is he? Oh, uh, yeah, I suppose we should have invited him for tea. We didn't think of that, really. Oh, my. And Moses hadn't asked for anything back as a result of helping in this way. I mean, he's he's a stranger. He's an alien. He doesn't know where he's going. He could do with some friends. But he's just helped the girls and then gone quietly on his way. He's unassuming as well. He's not trying to be big. He's not trying to make something of himself anymore. And he's on the way to becoming the meekest man of all the earth, isn't he? Somebody who's shy and won't push himself forward and hesitates before he goes into the big jobs for God. And sometimes, you know, the real heroes in the Christian world are not the people who find it easy to speak Not the people who are scared of nothing, who go and talk to anybody and do anything. It's the people who are full of fear. Because real courage is not ignoring danger. (laughs) It's facing the danger full in the face, being scared stiff of it, and doing what you've got to do anyway. (laughs) And Moses was a bit like that. He knew a bit more about the pitfalls now. He was able to be scared. He didn't trust himself as much as he did, but he still trusted God. And that was the important thing. So all of those things are are, are true about Moses and because of that he's able to go home not just for tea, after they've had tea um, the uh, priest says well how about marrying one of my girls and Moses says might as well, okay fair enough and so he marries uh, this girl Zipporah and she becomes his mainstay for the rest of his life. It's interesting to, you don't hear much about Zipporah but she brought him a brilliant (laughs) father-in-law and she obviously stuck by him for years and years and through all the dead end years When Moses is just herding sheep in the desert, she's there. She's bringing up the kids. She's giving him a stable family life. And if it wasn't for her, I don't know what Moses would have done. So God's supplied the basic needs that Moses has for recovery right from the word go. It's going to take a while. He's not ready to go back yet. But God is, through what he's bringing out of Moses' life, re-establishing a basis for the future. Another quote from Phil Fisher I saw when I was just putting that that picture of him in. The world doesn't learn about God by watching Christian movies. And that's a Christian movie maker talking. The world learns about God by watching Christians. And it's when you see what's in somebody's life, what's unconsciously flowing out of somebody's life, that's when you see the reality of the gospel in action. So, We've just got our last few verses to talk about here, so don't uh, lose hope. We're almost there. But uh, verses 23 to 25 has this little bit that takes the focus off Moses just for a moment and puts it back on God. The king of Egypt dies. The Israelites groan. And God starts to do various things. Behind the scenes, God starts to be at work. Now, one thing you'll find going through Exodus... And I'm sure you know this already, but you need to be careful with it. Is that often it speaks about what God does from a human standpoint, from the way it seems from earth. For instance, when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it wasn't that God uh, 
thought to himself, right now, Pharaoh is a nice, soft, sympathetic person. I'm going to have to make him into a really nasty individual. So he says no to Moses and Aaron, otherwise my plan falls through. No, that's not right. What it means, really, is Pharaoh hardened his own heart. (laughs) He was the one who said no and steeled himself against all of the appeals of the Israelites. But God used that. God allowed that to happen. He permitted the hardening of Pharaoh's heart because it was part of his plan. And you find sometimes uh, that uh, the the Bible does speak in that confusing way, and especially uh, Genesis and Exodus. It talks about something that, uh, uh, that God is doing Uh, in the way that it seems from the world. Now, you see this here because it says, first of all, God heard. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of the slavery went up to God, and God heard their groaning. The impression you might get from that is that God is sitting in heaven uh, doing nothing, and suddenly he hears this groaning noise from earth, and, oh my goodness, the Israelites had forgotten all about them. God doesn't forget. And God always hears. God had been hearing for the last 400 odd years. (laughs) He knew exactly where his people were. And that God is like that. And Jesus taught that, didn't he? Not a sparrow falls to the ground, but your heavenly father knows about it. He is always on the case. He knows more than we do about the situations in which we find ourselves. But when it says God heard, it meant this is a point at which God seems, from a human point of view, to pay attention. And we need to remember that, don't we? That even when God seems not to be paying attention, even when he seems not to be listening, he is. And the Bible stresses that again and again, doesn't it? You find it in the Psalms all the time. Why are you so far from me, Lord, and from the words of my my groaning? Lord, I I, I pray in the morning, I pray in the evening, you're still not listening. And you know that God is. (laughs) And God shows again and again. He's been with us all the time. It's just that it doesn't seem that way to us. So God heard. He started acting on what he'd heard for a very long time. Second, the second word it says about God is that God remembered. Now again, from a human point of view, it's Israelites, Israelites, they're groaning down there. Why are they groaning? Oh, I remember, I made promises to them. Oh, silly me. That's not God, is it? God doesn't do that. God remembered, all right, all the way through. But at this point, he remembered it in the sense that he started making it come alive again. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's as if, from a human standpoint, God has just suddenly brought it back to mind. No, God's been thinking about it all the way through. But there comes the point where he starts to do something to honor the promises he's made. The moment has arrived. The trouble is we only see from a human point of view. So we use what language we can about it. But God's on the case all the time. Then there's a third word. God looked. Uh, So God looked on the Israelites. You mean he wasn't looking up until now? Well, of course he was. Once again, it's a human word that's being used, isn't it? He knew everything about them. But now it's as if he's specially concerned with them because things start to fall into a pattern. Things start to move in a way that, that shows that God is attending to the different details of the whole thing. It's not that he hasn't been caring for them all the time. But now, because he's getting into action, it's as if he's looking more closely than he was before. And the final thing? Well, that's simply God knew them. God looked on the Israelites and it says he was concerned about them. The word literally in, in Hebrew is God knew them. Strange expression, isn't it? It's the same kind of thing that's used for, you know, when husbands and wives get together in the Old Testament. 
and so and so went in unto his wife and he knew her. That means basically they had sex together. It wasn't just that he went into the tent and said, oh yeah, wait a minute, I know you. I got married to you yesterday. <laughs> it's not that kind of knowing that's been talked about. It's what it's talking about is getting to know one another in the most intimate, personal way without any barriers between. Having a bond that is just a unique one. And it's that kind of knowing that's being talked about here. God looked on the Israelites and he knew them. He knew to the ver- the, what they were feeling to the very depths of their problems. He knew their frustrations. He knew their grief. He knew their, their lack of, uh, of uh, confidence, their shattered self-importance. He knew what 400 years had done to them. He knew them. And so the passage is saying, Moses is being prepared for action, but meanwhile... God, the person who's really behind it all, is taking action. So, we're moving on now. Let's just pray together about some of these things, shall we, before we go into the next part of our service. Let's just take a second to uh, think about anything that those really simple lessons have said to us. And Heavenly Father, as we think about this whole issue of what we can do and what you do. We're conscious that we're going